This podcast was recorded on Thursday, June 22nd at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You could uh, be forgiven for thinking that because they only got 40% of the vote, the Liberals figure it's okay if they only respect 40% of their promises. Well, it's not okay. The Liberals really are starting to show their true colors, and I think the Canadians are starting to realize that they've been had. leader Thomas Mulcair reviewing the Liberals' year. This week in the House, Mulcair pulled no punches in sharing what he thinks of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's string of broken promises. There's a term for someone who commits to something in writing and then reneges on that commitment. It's called a con job. New Conservative leader Andrew Scheer also jumped into the action, noting the Liberals' unilateral approach. Take, for example, the official languages commissioner. You know, I, by clearly, by appointing someone who has such obvious and clear partisan ties, that, that is something that just is, a, is such a, it's, it's a slap in the face to the other parties in the House of Commons. Not only did Scheer throw down tough words about the Liberals' bungling of the appointment of former Liberal Ontario MPP Madeleine Maillard as a non-partisan watchdog, the Tory leader also attacked the government's growing and seemingly endless deficits. And what's worrying about this is that Justin Trudeau's reckless spending is leading to an endless series of tax hikes for Canadian families. It's not what Canadians expected, but it's exactly what the Liberals have delivered. We're almost at the halfway mark for this Liberal mandate, and it's pretty obvious that the sunny skies have clouded over. Not surprisingly, the Prime Minister has a far different opinion of his government's record. Trudeau noted this week that 72,000 Canadians have joined the Liberal Party since last summer. But we need to know that what we are doing here, as Canadians, as Liberals, matters. It matters deeply. It matters that we can stand up and say, you know what, we're going to raise taxes on the wealthiest 1% and lower them on the middle class. That's what the world needs to hear. And what Trudeau wants to talk about is public housing, green infrastructure, and a Canada that welcomes newcomers. If we continue to stay, stay humble, stay focused, listen more than we speak, learn from our fellow citizens, include people in how we build better politics, and ultimately that is the promise that we made to Canadians in 2015. That is going to be the promise we make again to Canadians in 2019. And that is how we will continue to build a brighter future. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. Today on the show, we'll talk about the government's record this spring with political pundits Rachel Curran, Carl Belanger, and Greg McEachran. We'll touch base with Green Party leader Elizabeth May on some of the changes she wants to see in the Commons. But first we begin with the showdown between the Senate and the House, and an interview with Government House Leader Bartis Chagger. This is a really big impact show. Here we go. But an escalator clause in taxation means that you're getting no representation, but you're getting the tax because it escalates, escalates without any budget approval or scrutiny by Parliament. So we uh, were very against that 
Um, it, you know, they're saying one cent on beer, but we have no idea what it's going to be in two years, three years. The Restaurant Association said it's going to be a $20 million tax grab. Well, you want me to read the whole thing? Okay. Uh, seconded by the Honourable Senator Three Spellmar, the Honourable Senator Ubley, and the Honourable Senator Omidvar, that the Senate do not insist on its amendments to Bill C-44, an act to implement certain provisions of the budget table in Parliament on March the 22nd, 2017, and other measures to which the House of Commons has disagreed, but that the Senate confirms its privileges, immunities, and powers as provided under the Constitution to amend legislation, whatever its nature or source, and that a message be sent to the House of Commons to acquaint that House accordingly. Yeas pour, 50, 50. Nays court, 33, 33. Abstentions, abstention, nil, open. Accordingly, the motion is adopted. Well, that was how the great showdown between the Senate and the House of Commons came to an end. While MPs were eagerly waiting to get out of Ottawa and go home for the summer, the senators decided to send the Liberals' budget bill back to the House of Commons with an amendment. They wanted to remove an escalator on the excise tax regarding alcohol. The House said, unanimously, no thanks, and added this little line on Wednesday evening saying that they were rejecting the amendments because, quote, they infringe upon the rights and privileges of the House, end quote. Well, that got a lot of senators upset. You know, the wording of that was sort of uh, dripping with condescension and uh, offended a lot of people. But they weren't upset enough to vote against the Liberal government on Thursday morning. In fact, all the Liberal, Liberal independents and the independent independents that Trudeau's government appointed all voted with the Trudeau leadership in the Senate, rejecting their initial amendments and sending the budget bill back to the House of Commons with a note that they still reaffirmed their privileges to amend any budget bills or any bills as they see fit. Joining me to talk about all that is HuffPost Canada's senior political editor, Ryan Maloney. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Althea. How you doing? I'm great. I'm in this little... Uh, cubicle and the third floor of parliament kind of sounds very it's very hot but you know (laughs) it was very exciting today um let's start with why the senate decided to take this stand well i suspect it was uh had a lot to do with principle and it had a lot to do with uh the attitude that they received sort of from the from the government and uh principle in the sense that uh some senators obviously disagree with that um the escalator on those those booze taxes they uh maybe on a point of principle they they think it uh is a tax grab and that the the liberals should have to go back to the house if they want to continuously raise taxes on things like that but obviously, the way that the the liberals went and and sort of told them to to know their role, to know that they're not elected, and to just sort of uh, leave their bill their budget alone, um, rubbed them the wrong way clearly. And so I think that they were trying to make a point, but ultimately uh, caved, and it wasn't the the showdown and the throwdown that we were maybe expecting. I thought it was an interesting stand to take because one. I don't think senators really have a problem with an escalator. I mean, their salaries increase according to an escalator and have for the past... Very good point. Very good point. What, 12 years they are tied uh, to basically the average increase in this country. Um, The other thing that I thought was really interesting was they had a real principle, I thought, to stand on earlier this week with the Infrastructure Bank. This is when the upper chamber 
tried to carve out the infrastructure bank from the budget bill, arguing not that they were opposed to it, but that they thought the infrastructure bank deserved further study. And that amendment was defeated. The Senate basically was at a standstill, 38 to 38, and one member abstained, uh, which uh, allowed the Liberal government's bill to continue unchanged. But I thought that was a more worthy point than taxation on alcohol. Yeah, I agree. And that would have been tremendously interesting had that happened, right? Because conservatives and new Democrats have been saying that the liberals um, have this major, you know, infrastructure bank as sort of an, in an omnibus situation, which is what they've promised not to do. They they think it, you know, deserves its own uh, debate. Um, so that would have really thrown a wrench in things. But the argument that the liberals made, of course, was that that was central to the budget, that was central to their plan. So it was related. But that feels close to what we had heard at times from the Harper government when they put some big things all in one bill. You know, they could make that case that it was needed for the economy. So uh, that that stand was a lot more interesting and uh, maybe a harbinger of things to come. I want to run some tape from Elaine McCoy. She's basically the leader of the so-called independence in the Senate. And she spoke with reporters right after the vote that passed C-44, the budget bill, unamended and sent it back to the House. This is what she said. Uh, we sent it back once. We disagreed. We wanted to have amendments in that bill. But they can go out and door knock. We are appointed. We give them our advice. We do not insist on it. Unless it's a very, very important matter like going to war. If we disagreed about going to war, we would certainly insist. So I was really surprised to hear her say war, because that's not something that usually goes to the Senate. Yeah. And I'm not so sure that was super helpful for the for the arguments that they're making, because obviously military matters are prerogative of the executive. Um, Trudeau doesn't uh, even really need to go to uh, his fellow MPs to vote on these things. That's sort of a convention that that started under uh, Prime Minister Harper. So I don't know if that if that's super helpful. But you think about things like just, I, I was struck this week, I was thinking about the assisted dying legislation. And that was the last time that uh, we had these conversations about the Senate sort of holding its ground and will they sort of uh, refuse to pass the bill and things like that. Because the same thing happened. They amended the bill, sent it to the Absolutely. House. The House said no thanks, sent it to and the caved. Senate. And that, exactly, yeah. They backed down. And, and, and the thing is, at that time, I mean, that was even more of an issue because you had senators saying this bill, I don't believe is constitutional, uh, constitutional. I don't believe that mm-hmm. this bill satisfies what the Supreme Court wanted, but it's your fault or it's your problem now, elected MPs. So I don't know. Mr. Trudeau wanted an independent Senate, but um, the question again is, is how much of that was uh, optics and how much of that is uh, what he actually really wants. So last night, because I have no life, I was reviewing the rules of parliament. And there is a mechanism to deal with confrontation between the House of Commons and the Senate to get them to agree on something when there is no agreement. It's called a conference. And whichever chamber that has the bill at the time, so on Wednesday night, it would have been the Senate or Thursday morning would have been the Senate, can tell the House of Commons, we want to have a conference and we'll sort this problem out and maybe will come to a solution. This hasn't actually been used since 1947, but it exists. It's in the books. So I asked the Tories if they had thought of using this. And the answer I got was from Bob Brunsman. 
an Ontario senator a plain no. No one had thought of a conference. So it led me to think, is this just a PR exercise? Is this just something that the conservative senators are pushing because they want to prove to Canadians or show to Canadians that the independents are actually not really independent, that they're voting the vast majority, overwhelming majority of the time with the Liberal government. And they want to again remind Canadians that uh, the Liberals are taxing their booze and alcohol as they head towards Canada Day and summer holidays. Well, I certainly think that that's, that's clearly part of it. I mean, the Conservatives have been trying to make a pretty big deal out of things like the booze taxes and the taxes on Uber services and ride-sharing services and the notion that there could be a Netflix tax and things like that. So they're trying to politically present this idea that the Liberals are nickel and diming and trying to get as much out of your regular, hardworking, partying Canadians uh, as they can. Brian Maloney, thank you very much for joining us. Always a Thank you very much. We should, ha- we, should have a- we should have a drink before, you know, these escalator taxes. <laughs> kicking okay i take that to mean the drinks are on you deal thanks ryan thank you that was HuffPost canada's senior politics editor ryan maloney here's andre pratt an independent senator explaining the showdown and the senate's role as he sees it it's useful to suggest amendments uh, because sometimes the House of Commons accepts those amendments, accepts the fact that those amendments makes the bill better. It has happened in the past and many, many times, in fact, that the government has accepted the amendments that we propose. And it also uh, alerts public opinion that sometimes those bills, the bills that comes from the House of Commons, are not perfect. And sometimes our amendments makes the bill, make the bill better. And, uh, but this time, the government has decided that they don't want uh, any of our amendments. They rejected, rejected those amendments. And we accept that the House of Commons is elected. We're appointed. We're only there to suggest amendments, except in exceptional circumstances. This is not one of those exceptional circumstances. We have now finished the end of 15 weeks of work in the House of Commons this year. As we head into the summer, it is clear that our government has been working hard to bring forward new policies and wise investments on how to improve this country. This year's budget delivers more than $1 billion on skills and innovation and lifelong learning. 29 government bills, 14 of those since January of this year, have passed through both houses. We have taken legislative action to respond to national opioid crisis that struck our communities. We have restored fairness, balance and stability to Canada's labour relations system. And we have passed legislation to create a National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians to oversee the government's national security operations. That's the government house leader, Bardis Chagger, outlining some of the Liberals' accomplishments this spring. Can you hear me breathing a lot? No, I can hear the alarm and the beep, 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 though. There's a lot of construction outside. That's called infrastructure. Chagger and I met in her office on Thursday, shortly after her year-end press conference. For us, when we hear beep, 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 and we hear infrastructure, we hear jobs. We hear a growing economy. 
So I want to ask you about the lengthy accomplishments that you outlined uh, just in the foyer a few minutes ago. You know, when you compare the Liberal government's record over last year compared to the Stephen Harper record, it's, well, a little bit more than a third of the bills passed. What would you say to critics who say this has not been a very productive parliament? So in the current parliament, we've been sitting for 199 days, and more than 125 of those days have been devoted to debating government legislation. Something we committed to Canadians during the campaign was that we would ensure that the voice of Canadians would be heard in this place. And that's why, as the government house leader, I committed to ensuring that there was meaningful debate, as well as advancing the ambitious agenda that Canadians sent us here to deliver. I need to ensure that we are advancing legislation that works for all Canadians. And that's why I will tell you that debate is essential. And members of parliament who are elected to represent their constituents need to have the opportunity to voice the opinions, the views of their constituents. And I also have a responsibility to advance government legislation. So your explanation is that there's just been more time for debate than Stephen Harper allowed on his bills. Yes. In the past two weeks, there's been a flurry of government activity. We've had uh, a bill this week on national security. We've had changes to the Access to Information Act. We've had changes to the Federal Sustainable Development Act, changes to solitary confinement, changes to sexual assault uh, complainants, the way that's done, changes to political fundraising, changes to marine protection areas or how that process works. We've had changes to access laws regarding the long gun registry. And if we dig a little bit further into April, we had two marijuana bills. We had... Uh, some bills on arms controls, but these bills haven't actually, the majority, marijuana probably is the exclusion here, haven't really moved beyond first reading. What has explained this flurry of activity kind of late in the session? It's just, is this just giving people the ability to, and by people I mean members of parliament here, the ability to have something to talk about <laughs> over the summer? Or is there like a practical reason why all of this seems to have come out of the blue at once at the very end of the sit- sitting? So when we ran in the campaign, we committed to ensuring, as I've said, the voice of Canadians would be heard in this place. So when we are advancing legislation, we are having meaningful consultations with Canadians. We are going to those stakeholders. We are working better with provinces and territories and municipalities to ensure that we are responding in the best interest of Canadians, that we are responding to the very real challenges that they are facing. And that's what's important. What we are also seeing is that within the last few weeks, we've been able to advance a lot of legislation that benefits Canadians. And that's because keeping this door open and encouraging us to work better together as members of parliament, as different political parties, has allowed us to deliver success for Canadians. Okay, so I'm sorry, but what does that mean? It means that we've actually gone through a lot of legislation over the last few weeks. So when it comes to the legislation that you're referring to and introducing it, it's important that we consult with Canadians. It's important that we continue talking to Canadians to ensure that it is good legislation. And for myself as a government house leader, I need to ensure that the minister that's introducing legislation has done their due diligence and that it's good legislation that's being introduced. So are you suggesting that the reason there hasn't been that much legislative activity is because that you are doing this due diligence that is like there's a a blockage here? I would say that there's been a lot of legislation that has been introduced. 
like since January, we have had 29 bills go through both chambers. And if you look at the number of days of debate, over 125 days out of 199 days have been used to debate legislation in the best interest of Canadians. We but while you had 29, Stephen Harper had 61. I think that's the comparison. His approach was different. That your we, critics, right, and that's why I'm asking you about this. I want to ensure that we're advancing good legislation for Canadians. That's what we committed to. We committed to doing government very differently. We committed to ensuring that the voices of Canadians would be heard in this place, and that's who we are working hard for every single day. Thomas Mulcair, the NDP leader, uh, on Wednesday suggested that your government has a problem with governing, that it does not know how to govern, and that your word cannot be trusted. And he pointed to um, the discussions over setting up a special committee to look at appointments in the fallout of the Madeleine Maillard um, appointment. Or In the end, she recused herself from being the official languages commissioner. But the fact that that was a very partisan person that had been appointed to a nonpartisan watchdog position. What do you respond to his criticisms that you guys can't be trusted and that you don't know what you're doing? I believe that we need to do government very differently. We need to do politics very differently, and that's part of what we've committed to doing. Partisan politics, um, I guess, has a place, but we really do need to lower the level of partisanship in this place. We committed to introducing an open, transparent, merit-based appointment process. That's exactly what we've done. With that process, over 170 appointments have been made. And if you talk about Madeline Mayer, nobody's talking about her experience or her expertise or how well she would do that job. What they've resorted to is partisan politics, which is unfortunate. But nobody's challenging her credibility. Nobody's challenging the fact that she would do the job well. What they are having a challenge with is that this woman was involved in the democratic process, that she has been a card-carrying member of a political party, and that's challenging, at a time where we want more Canadians to be involved in the political process. So are we saying that if you're involved in the political process, you can never contribute to government in an appointment process? And that's what's really challenging right now, is I believe that if you're looking at an open, transparent, merit-based appointment process then let's open up the process and let's Canadians let's let Canadians apply for these I positions. I think that that's what he was trying to suggest, and that's what the NDP had suggested in terms of having this all-party committee that would review appointments to very important watchdog positions. And he says that the Liberals had agreed to, uh, well, got the NDP to agree to some amendments, hoping that there would be buy-in from the government and that you guys broke your word. And his, his criticism is that... Um, Maybe it's growing pains, but that you're not as efficient and you're not, your word is not valuable, I think was what basically he told reporters. It's really unfortunate that he feels that way because if you look at the current process, and it's important that your listeners know that with the current process that when you do um, put forward a name for one of these positions, that name is automatically referred to committee. Those committees are already all party, and they have the ability to not only scrutinize the appointment process, as he's suggesting, they can actually call that person to committee right. and actually directly ask we're some questions. About apples and oranges. If, like, no, 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 no. We're he, actually he not. was talking about the sort of committee that exists for like judicial appointments. But that's okay. I don't want to get into a long discussion about mm-hmm. whether or not Madeleine Mayer was there. I just wanted to I know. just want you to know, though, that it's important that the listeners also know is that currently when a name is put forward in the House of Commons, that 
name already is referred to committee. Committee members, which are all that's party, fair, and that's are able where to we discovered that she had spoken to Gerald Butts and Katie Telford. Yes, there's two things I want to finish off by asking you. Um, the first is really about the showdown with the Senate. That you were taping this on Thursday. Uh, the senators decided this morning that they were not going to hold uh, their ground on uh, this amendment regarding the escalator for taxes on booze. Um, They were going to uh, let the budget pass as the government wished, but they wanted to reaffirm their rights, their privileges to amend uh, any type of legislation. And some people felt that the language that was used, some senators here, felt that the language that the government had used, and I understand this was a motion that was passed with unanimous consent in the House, But because it said, and I'm going to quote here, these amendments infringe upon the rights and privileges of the House, and quote, that this was something that they found deeply offensive. Why did you put that language in? I think it's important for us to recognize and for myself to state once again my support of the good work that the Senate does. I've been in a Senate question period. Senators know how much I appreciate their work. I believe in a sober second thought. And that's why I really appreciated the Prime Minister's vision for a nonpartisan Senate so that they could actually be um, that sober second thought and share the knowledge and wisdom and so forth that they offer to advance good legislation for Canadians. When it comes to this legislation we're talking about, is it's Bill C-44, which is the Budget Implementation Act. It actually implements the budget that's already passed both houses. And what's in the Budget Implementation Act was in the budget that's gone through that process. But were you saying to the Senate that you do not believe that they have the right to amend budget bills, any budget bills? So we know that the Senate has amended legislation in the past. We know when there's meaningful, constructive conversation, the House is more than receptive to those changes. We know that the two houses need to work better together. I am here to ensure that that happens. I respect the work that they do. So that's a, that's a no then. You, you were not saying to the Senate, we think you don't have the right to amend budget bills. The, the Senate's going to do the work that they need to do. We'll do the work that we need to do. Right, but I'm just trying to get, I'm trying to do my job, right? <laughs> Which is trying to get you to answer a clear question. So were you trying to, to tell the Senate, are you telling the Senate that the Liberal government doesn't think that they have the ability to amend budget bills? What I'm telling yourself and your listeners is that we recognize the importance of the work that the House of Commons does, and we recognize the importance of the work no that the Senate does. No one's disputing that. And that's what we'll continue to do, is to ensure that all parliamentarians work you better just, together. Why won't you answer that question? I believe history, uh, we've demonstrated that we the, the Senate has, and we've always kept an open mind, and that we've worked with them. We need to ensure that they have the information to ensure that we are advancing good legislation for Canadians, and that's what we'll continue to do. And that's why I've always said that I have the utmost respect for the Senate and the work that they do. I am here to ensure that we are working better together. And I actually appreciate what they have done and the tough conversations they have done to advance. So they have the right. You were just telling them to butt out. Politely, of course. I hope that they continue doing the good work that they do. I want to finish off by asking you about Candace Bergen. This week in the House of Commons, she basically had a, a lengthy speech where she said, accused the Prime Minister of using you and other young women who are cabinet ministers, uh, Miriam Monsef, Karina Gould. Basically, she was suggesting that the Prime Minister is using you guys as pawns and that she feels that you've been prematurely promoted and he is setting you up to fail. I truly believe the Honourable Member for Waterloo is very well-intentioned, but she has been set up by her Prime Minister for failure. 
as a rookie parliamentarian and taking on the important role as House Leader, the fact that our self-proclaimed feminist Prime Minister has put a number of earnest, well-intentioned, but inexperienced young female ministers into senior roles where they become political roadkill. What did you think of her comments? Althea, I'll tell yourself and I'll tell all your listeners is that I've been waiting for a government like this. I've been waiting for leadership like this prime minister. I am somebody who never thought she'd run for office. And the reality is, is that I ran for a nomination and I won it. I ran in an election and I won it. The prime minister had confidence in me to do the important work that he felt that I could contribute to that cabinet table. What I know about that cabinet table is that there is meaningful conversations taking place there that have never taken place at that table. We are representing the voices of Canadians with different backgrounds, different experiences like we've never done. And that was a commitment I made during the campaign. And oftentimes in a campaign, we say one thing and once we're elected, we say another. What's clear about this prime minister's leadership is that when we said that the voices of Canadians would be heard in this government, in the House of Commons, that's exactly what we're doing. My voice matters. The voice of women matters. The voice of the children of immigrants matters. The voice of Indigenous peoples matters. And that's what we're seeing. Every single cabinet minister comes with different experience, comes with different expertise, comes from different communities, and it matters. And I think that's what democracy is about, having those tough conversations. Today, we have a prime minister that is not only listening to Canadians, but it's engaging with Canadians and is committed to responding to the very real challenges that they are facing. This is a government that I have dreamt of. This is a government I have the privilege of being part of. And if people have different perspectives, that's their prerogative. What I know is that government needs to be done differently. And not only are we saying it, we're doing it. And I'm very proud to be part of this government. And I'm very proud of the leadership of this prime minister. And I will continue fighting for Canadians to ensure that we're responding to what they need us to fight for. And if Canadians want to participate and be part of that conversation, I encourage them to do so. My door will always be open. Were you insulted? Did you find her comments insulting? You know, we live in a country where this year we just celebrated the 35th anniversary of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Comments like this, I've heard my whole lifetime. What I know is that I want to be part of the solution. I want to be part of a constructive conversation. I want to contribute to make sure that we strengthen democracy and different people will choose to do it in their own ways. I know that I have a mandate given to me not only by the good people of the riding of Waterloo but by the Prime Minister. I will continue to advance that mandate mandate to ensure that Canadians succeed. Barty Schacker, thank you very much. Thank you, Althea. or Taran Malik. I'm originally from Indore, India. 
I've been in Winnipeg for the last 51 years, and I love, love, love the Liberals. Especially, I loved Pierre Elliott Trudeau. I thought there would be no other like him. And his son has got him in his dust. Oh my God. He is the best prime minister ever, ever, ever in the world, as was his father before him. Ms. Malik is a Liberal Party donor. I met her at the Liberals Laurier Club event. She had a lot of positive things to say about the Liberals, but the party didn't want me or other reporters to speak with her. In fact, they kicked us out. Happy to have your conversation continue outside. You can wait for people out there, just the media has to leave this point. You guys really are stuck in a pen, aren't you? I managed to speak to one other person who could help explain why the Liberal brand, and specifically Justin Trudeau's, is just as popular today as it was 20 months ago. Yeah, my name is Alan Thompson. I was a Liberal candidate in Huron-Bruce in southwestern Ontario. So we're doing a sort of report card of the last six months. How would you, you don't need to give me a letter grade, but what are your feelings about how the government has performed? I mean, I'm biased, obviously. I was a candidate. Uh, I was out door knocking. Uh, on Saturday, we had a day of action, so I was in Goderidge, southwestern Ontario, a riding that went conservative, right? I didn't win, obviously, and uh, nothing but positive. I mean, I, I won't say nothing but positive. Overwhelmingly positive. The, the people we spoke with in a couple of hours of door knocking. Uh, very, very strong reaction around the Prime Minister himself. Uh, people like him. Uh, Maybe some issues on electoral reform, a couple people are disappointed, electoral reform hadn't proceeded. A couple of others were a bit more sympathetic, like, well, yeah, it would have been fine, but it didn't happen, so we're moving on. Uh, I didn't find, there's, I had a couple negative encounters with people who I suspect will never ever vote liberal in their lifetime. Uh, pushback around Syrian refugees, uh, just a general, uh, I don't have a job, when's this guy going to get me a job? Uh, the only thing that I would maybe identify is uh, people want more. They want to see, they want to see this roll out. They want to see more promises fulfilled. And in rural communities especially, there's still that sense of, uh, almost a sense of grievance that we live in rural Canada, not in the city. So. When are you going to pay more attention to, to small towns, rural communities? But really, I mean, I, I did a quick Facebook post about it afterward. Uh, it was generally quite positive. So for a former candidate, it was encouraging to knock on doors and hear positive things from people. I, in that same town, in Godridge, during the election, there's no way I would have had as positive a reception knocking on doors and asking people about Justin Trudeau. You know, a lot of us, your former colleagues um, have made a lot of the fact that he hasn't lived up to the promises. Mm. We've nitpicked the legislation and uh, we talk about that consistently. Do you think anybody cares? Uh, I don't want to make it sound dismissive by saying no, they don't care. I wouldn't frame it that way, but I think when you ask this question, right direction, wrong direction, are you happy with the way this guy is leading the country? The overwhelming response in a riding that was won by a conservative was, yes, oh no, we're happy. 
uh, we're very content. And, and some people were like over the top, exuberant. Uh, oh, I love this guy. And so, uh, yeah, there'll be some things that people will be disappointed with, but the overall general impression that I get is positive. And that's in a riding where, he, where we didn't win, right? And I, uh, I think that's a very good sign because he's a known quantity now. I suspect in rural ridings, there will be people who still don't even like him who will vote for him because they see competence and uh, professionalism that they weren't expecting. In January, Donald Trump became President of the United States of America. Chief Justice Roberts, President Carter, President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, fellow Americans, and people of the world, thank you. It's no secret that Justin Trudeau was expecting Hillary Clinton to win, but the PMO pivoted. They built links with key White House aides, Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon. They dispatched ministers to D.C. and state capitals to sell Canada's pro-trade message, just as NAFTA renegotiations are now set to begin this August. So has Donald Trump thrown the liberals off course? Joining me to talk about that and much, much more in our year in review is Greg McEachran, a senior vice president with Enveronics and a former liberal senior staffer. Rachel Curran is a senior associate with Harper & Associates and former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's director of policy. And Carl Belanger is the president of the Douglas Caldwell Foundation and a longtime NDP advisor. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. So what has the impact of the Trump election been on the Trudeau government's agenda? Good question. Well, look, the biggest challenge, I think, to the implementation of any government's agenda is events. So we didn't expect in 2008, 2009, that there would be a global recession. We had to recalibrate the entire agenda, write an entirely new uh, budget when that happened. Uh, nobody was expecting it. No one predicted it. Uh, I think a similar thing, cause a thing has happened with Trump. No one was predicting that he would be president of the US. No one was expecting him to win. Uh, and so when it happens, I think the Trudeau government had to do a very similar thing and just rethink their entire agenda because suddenly um, the commitments he'd made around renegotiating NAFTA, um, around kind of going after Canadian interests that he felt were impacting Americans negatively, that suddenly had to become the government's priority focus. And in fairness to the current government, they, I think, have done a good job of, of doing exactly that. So, so shifting their focus to Trump, to NAFTA, to all of the things that are now suddenly top of mind for them. I think the biggest impact has been the the amount of resources that this has taken from this government, whether it's time or money. I mean, we have um, you know travel is proactively disclosed in in Canada by by uh, our, our politicians and staff. So we'll be seeing how much, for example, how much time have they been spending uh, in Washington? I I know of one chief of staff who, since the inauguration, has been in Washington eight times. So eight times since the end of January for a chief of staff to a cabinet minister would have probably been unheard of in any recent mm -hmm. U.S. administration. So I think just the focus that it's taken from everything else that they wanted to do, and, and I think we saw this in a little bit of the lead up into the budget, where it was going to be an innovation budget, and then they got very quiet about that, yeah. and it got, you know, they, and, and, I and think, delayed. And delayed. And, and I think 
the other thing is we've we've seen some I think some some polling that the last two budgets have not really landed the way that the government perhaps wanted them to do. But you know the first one was after a couple of months you know in government. The second one was after this huge change uh, in the U.S. and I, and I don't think it was just. Uh, I don't think it's a secret that, you know, the Trudeau government was surprised by this. I mean, I was, um, you know, we're, we're, we're taping this in the Chateau Laurier. This is where the U.S. Embassy had their election night party. And you could see the looks on everyone in that room. There was surprise that Hillary Clinton had lost, and including the U.S. Embassy staff, who just kind of looked a bit stricken. And I remember uh, Minister Morneau came in, and all of a sudden there was questions uh, from the media on it. And you start to think about markets, and his staff whisked him out of the room right away. So. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the biggest thing is just the amount of time and money and energy that this government has had to devote to this this new administration. Uh, or when they are continuously focusing on the U.S., they're not really focused on implementing their domestic agenda. And they have to change it and, and adapt it. I mean, we just saw it. We had a budget a couple of months ago. And then just uh, two weeks ago, suddenly we have a big increase in spending in, uh, in defense because at the behest of Donald Trump. That was not in the budget. That was not the long-term planning. It was nowhere to be found. But suddenly, you have to change because uh, you have to keep that guy down south kind of happy and on side if you're not going to suffer uh, bigger consequences by entering into more difficult uh, discussions on other issues. And, and this leads me to talk about trade, which is the next big one mm-hmm. item. The NAFTA renegotiations are going to start in August. And the the impact it has in Canada, aside from the governmental impact, is the uncertainty it creates in many economic sectors of this country. I'm thinking auto, I'm thinking agriculture, I'm thinking softwood lumber, many other sectors. People do not know what's going to happen. Uh, they have made plans, they have partnership with, with, uh, with American business, they're exporting, they're importing. What will happen to them? They're wondering and they're not sure because they had a feeling that, uh, first of all, the government was not prepared for the Trump administration. And then they opened the door to a quick uh, agreement to agree to negotiate uh, NAFTA. And it's not clear what the game plan is. I don't think they know yet what the game plan is uh, other than to mitigate the damage that could be created by reopening this agreement. So that was January. In February, <laughs> the government announced it was breaking its election pledge. We, I think, all assumed that there would be an announcement saying that they were going to go back on the word that the 2015 election was going to be the last election under the first-past-the-post system. But there was a new cabinet minister uh, sworn in in January, Ontario MP, Karina Gould, and uh, she came out three weeks later and said electoral reform was no longer in her mandate letter. And it has become evident that the broad support needed among Canadians for a change of this magnitude does not exist. Furthermore, without a clear preference or a clear question, a referendum would not be in Canada's interest. Changing the electoral system is not in my mandate. Will this broken election pledge matter in the next election? I I don't think so. I I really don't. And here's the, the challenge for me on this is that um, you know, as a former Liberal staffer watching the, the election, there was a couple of announcements that I looked at that I questioned why they were doing this. Who was the audience for this, um, for that promise? And I, I'm not entirely sure. And I don't think the other challenge for me is trying to 
demonstrate the problem that they were trying to solve. I don't think that was ever clear to a lot of Canadians and to a lot of their partisans. The, the, the base of the Liberal Party is very loose. It's not like Conservatives. There are people that I've come across and when I was you know, active in politics who would tell you that they have you know, voted Liberal their entire lives but have never had a sign or made a donation. It's a much looser collective. And I'm not sure that that was ever made clear to them what this was, what, you know, breaking or, 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 or ending first past the post was supposed to do and how it benefit the average Canadian. Carol? It, it will have an impact in the sense that, once again, we will have an election where in all likelihood, a government will have a majority without having the support of a majority of Canadians. You will get 35 to 40% support and you will end end up with 100% of the power. Okay, wait a second. That was not supposed to happen anymore. Who do you think is going to win the next election? It doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's going to be the end result. Um, in all likelihood, I mean, it's been a long time since the government, a party won 50% of the vote in this country. So, um, But this you did was, say majority government. That's right. This is what has been the norm recently is like you know, conservatives or liberals form a majority government with 38%. It is possible that the next NDP leader carry, uh, <laughs> you know, its way forward and won a majority government with less than 40% of the vote. That should not happen uh, in a modern democracy. And that's what Justin Trudeau promised he would do. Now, of course, will this specific promise impact the electoral chances of the Liberal Party? I doubt it, except for the fact that this is one more chip into his armor, uh, the, the, the real change agenda that is not really coming, another broken promise. And when you add them up, uh, you give incentives to people who voted for that change to not for you again, uh, to not vote for you again, because it's, uh, that was not implemented. Yeah, I agree with Carl on this. I think it's the cumulative impact of these broken promises that's really important. Um, I, I do actually think this one matters more than we think it does. I've heard a lot of people say, look, we were re we voted for Prime Minister Trudeau because we wanted to talk about proportional representation. We wanted to talk about this issue of governments being elected by less than 50% of the population, majority governments. Uh, and, and, and they were really particularly younger uh, Canadians who came out en masse in, in 2015 to vote. Um, seemed quite upset about this particular broken promise. But I think it's in concert with all of the others, uh, whether it's on access to information and increased transparency and accountability, whether it's on the use of omnibus bills, which they promised not to do and then did, uh, whether it's, in my view, most importantly, this broken promise around the deficit uh, and capping that at 10 billion. We all know it's at 30 billion now and climbing and there's no plan to ever balance the budget, as far as I can see, um, which presents, I think, huge fiscal challenges for Canada in the future and for young Canadians in particular who will be paying higher taxes to, to pay off this accumulated debt. So, so all of those broken promises together I think feed cynicism, they feed disillusionment and I think that will eventually be a real problem for the government. I should just add though, um, the uh while I personally might not be, you know, invigorated by first past the post, and I did wonder sometimes if it was a, a 2015 pros, uh, promise that was really about the 2011 uh, election, how the Liberals fared, and, you know, beware of generals fighting the last battle. Um, but I, I will say in terms of this promise, it's the like the old beer ad, those who like it, like it a lot. I have talked to Liberals who are very upset about this, and I think in the recent Ottawa-Vanier by-election, the Liberal candidate definitely heard a lot about it. At the doors at the doors, and even at the nomination meetings. It was quite a large nomination. Um, I want to pick up on some of the things that Carl and Rachel just said, because this is what Thomas Mulcair said on Wednesday um, when he was speaking to reporters about this sort of escalation of broken promises. 
real change has translated into an unprecedented two unprecedented attempts to unilaterally change the House rules. We had Motion 6 uh, after Mr. Trudeau was very frustrated when we almost defeated him on the Air Canada Bill, and then we had this year's attempt. That's not real change. That, that's Stephen Harper times 10, because Mr. Harper never tried to change the rules of the House of Commons unilaterally. And it's not real change when you bring forward a privatization bank that you never talked about during the election campaign. It's not real change when Canadians said that they didn't like the substantive provisions of Bill C-51, and you promise to change them, and all you bring in is a little bit of window dressing like Mr. Trudeau did yesterday. So in example after example, Canadians are starting to be very disappointed. My goodness, hashtag real change. Look at climate change. Mr. Trudeau used to ridicule Stephen Harper's targets and timelines and plan. Mr. Trudeau went to Paris and said Canada was back. Then Mr. Trudeau had to say that his plan was Stephen Harper's targets, timelines, and plan. The one thing that strikes me is, despite what, whether it's the Access to Information Pledge or even the lack of action on Indigenous issues, although there was some um, nice announcements on Wednesday. Entirely um, symbolic announcements. Yes, symbolic <laughs> announcements. Much like the defense spending, which doesn't actually tie the government to spending what it says it's going to spend. Um, but the Liberal government is still immensely popular. So what are they doing right I can answer that. So I think they're great at communications. They're great at all this stylistic stuff. Um, they've got a great social media strategy. The prime minister is out there doing public events, looking great while he's doing it. Um, they, they manage the message around even their non-announcements really well. Uh, for instance, you saw yesterday around the rollout of their um, changes to the anti-terrorism laws. Uh, there was really nothing substantive in those changes, and yet they handled it as though it were the biggest revamp to the Harper government C-51 bill that you know could possibly have been imagined. And there really wasn't much there. But they're good at making it look like they're doing stuff even when they're not really doing much. Um, so I think they're excellent at communications. I also think the Prime Minister knows how to connect well with people, and so they've got him out out there talking to Canadians and really kind of playing on his strengths, which is connecting with people, which is showing the kind of charismatic side of his personality. Uh, it's all about style with him. It's all about style, not substance. But for now, that's enough. Yeah, the, the, the reality is that they like to uh, pretend like they're doing a lot of things and they're good at it. I totally agree. Uh, so there's lots of activities, but not a lot of action. Uh, not a lot of actual things getting done, and we just see it in, in the nomination process, uh, the, the backlog of nomination for judges, uh, and, and the money not flowing for infrastructure, for defense, uh, you name it. And it's, But the reality is that while they're looking good now, these things add up. And at the end of the day, somebody will have to do something about these things. And if the, the liberal government is not able to do it, uh, they will be replaced. Now, it may take a, another election, but the bill will be coming. And it will be coming in a, either in a form of increased taxes or cuts into the services. Uh, either way, uh, the way they're behaving right now is not you know, is not responsible because you ended up you end up leaving a huge debt, environmentally, uh, fiscally, uh, on the on the on the shoulder of future generation, and you don't have a plan to actually achieve uh, budget balance. But you're doing things. It looks like you're doing things, but you're not actually doing what you promised you would do. I think um, I'll come back to the to the um, 
to the photo op aspect first, but just to add something different, I think the other thing is Canada on the world stage. Mm-hmm. Um, Trudeau is very popular in the United States. I mean, we we exist. We're a middle power, and we you know we def- tend to define ourselves how other countries, especially the United States, view us if we if we matter. And we see that a lot through social media, through American networks, and then you know in, in Europe, um, his recent visit to to France, all of that. I think Canadians do have. A, a lot of pride. There's a you know a couple of generations who were pride of that. Put the maple leaf on your backpack when you go to Europe, and everything's going to be okay. You know that's what we had kind of going for us. I think to kind of go back to the communications element of it, what this also does is when the cons- when the the opposition complain about constraints or you know the heavy hand, what Canadians hear that and then they see Trudeau plunging into a crowd. Um, with no, you know, there's no barriers, whether it's the prom photo or he's kayaking up to someone's dock. So the, the photo, and people are going to take that in, you know, you know, if you watch the news with the, the sound off, you're going to look at that and you're going to see a very approachable prime minister. So it's really tough for the opposition to connect the dots on the, you know, the harsher stuff that happened in the House, and we all know that it did happen, when the visuals look so, so appealing. What Greg is saying, uh, what, what Greg is saying in a sense is that Despite what people say about Andrew Scheer, Stephen Harper with a smile is actually Justin Trudeau. Uh, he's doing everything that conservatives were doing, not changing much. You know, same environment target, uh, same policies in terms of uh, uh, of the economy, and, and and you name them. Well, the tax policies. Well, yeah, there's some changes, you right? Know, I, the I'm gonna, I, there, there are slight differences. I, I'm going to say slight. things like, well, you know, like when... Um, at the press gallery dinner when reporter Dean Beebe did a really harsh criticism of the government, I'm not sure Prime Minister Harper would have walked over and shook that reporter's hand, but that's what Trudeau did with, with, with Beebe. Um, I think when CETA got uh, negotiated and Christian Freeland crossed the floor to hug Ed Fast, who had done a lot of the heavy lifting on this, I think Canadians look at that and they look at Parliament and they think, if I put myself in that situation, I would, I would hate that experience. But then they see things like that. They think, how... I want to be treated the way I would treat other people. And I think the government is a bit different than the predecessor on things like that, where there is this, they're allowed to let the human side come out. And I absolutely. think Canadians like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, in tone and style, I agree, they're they're very different and that works well for them. But really, the key person in this government is Justin Trudeau's photographer. Like, he is the most <laughs> important <laughs> person in the PMO. Absolutely. So, you know, Canadians voted in 2015 for real change. Have they gotten real change? I think in a lot of uh, areas they have. Um, I think what the, what we started off this podcast with, uh, talking about the Trump administration, has kind of you know changed the, the direction uh, and and probably in some ways uh, hurt the momentum. But I think they also their momentum has been impacted by the fact that they went from third government, third place, sorry, third party to to government. And there were a lot of growing pains. There's, you know, it took them a long time to staff up. Um, there's a lot of ministers that seem very tentative. John Geddes and McLean's talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Well, where are the stars? Where are the people, you know, besides Jane Philpott and Ralph Goodale and a few others, the rest of them just kind of seem to be, you know, present. They're not, you know, they're not doing any harm to the government, but they're not really, you know, the bright shining star of, of tomorrow. And I think that's probably problematic because the next election is going to be a lot different than the last one. It's not going to be about change. And we'll see how long the prime minister's coattails are. Hey, it could be about change, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, for the Liberal Party, it will not be presenting change. <laughs> but it, it, it was 
cosmetic change that they got. And maybe that's enough. Maybe they're happy with just that cosmetic change and doing the same thing we used to do and doing it with a smile. Maybe they're happy with that. But I think as we've discussed at the beginning of the program, a lot of people voted for actual real change. No more first past the post. Um, access to information within the minister's office and prime minister's office. That sort of things are not being delivered by the government. And by adding them up, you look at the at the at the at the results, and you don't get real change. You just get more the same with a nicer smile and better hair and nice socks. <laughs> <laughs> so here's where there has been real change, and I'll give them non-credit for this. So on the fiscal front, that's where there is an entirely different approach. So Justin Trudeau campaigned on running deficits. People were okay with that. He was elected, uh, of course, when. The government entered office, it abandoned any kind of pretense of fiscal responsibility, um, and there is now no uh, no cap on the deficit amount. There's no cap on the debt that we are going to accumulate over the next four years and beyond. And, and that there will be a price to pay for that, whether it's cuts in services down the, down the line, as Paul Martin and, and Jean Cretin had to do in the 90s uh, to address the debt racked up by Pierre Trudeau, um, or whether and it comes, and, and, well, yes, although he got the operational Budget under control, um, or or whether it comes in the form of higher taxes, which are almost inevitable, and we see that happening now as tax credits are cancelled, uh, which results in higher taxes for for various niche groups, if you want to call them that. So so the, the the bill is coming due for that, whether it comes due in the next four years or in the next ten years, um, who knows? It depends on what happens in 2019, I think. But I but there is a very different approach to managing the country's finances um, to fiscal responsibility by this government than there was by the last. I don't want to sound like an apologist, but I mean, it has been you know less than two years and real change does take time. And a lot of this stuff so far has been undoing things that the previous administration senses, um, reopening the Veterans Affairs offices, um, relations with media, a bit warmer, a bit better. Um, some things haven't kind I'm of... I'm not sure that I would agree with Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read your story. Um, tax cuts, I don't know if people feel that, that flow through yet. We have yet to see the infrastructure dollars impact local communities. And then like a big policy change, probably the biggest one so far, is, is you know, a year away, and that's, and that's the legalization of marijuana. So some of this stuff will take some time, I think, to, to be seen. Well, to your point about maybe this is because the government is a novice and doesn't really know um, how to go about uh, pursuing the change that it wants to implement. Um, Mr. Mulcair, again, at the press conference on Wednesday, had some thoughts about that. I can't explain to you anymore why the Liberals just can't get it right, other than putting some part of it on sheer incompetence. They're not good at governing. They're great at providing lines. They're extraordinary about emoting. Uh, they're great about communications. But there are actually some nuts and bolts, things that you have to know how to do to make a government work, and they just don't know how to do it. So the government seems to be actually having a hard time passing its legislation. There were 27 bills, I believe, this spring passed. That's a little bit more than a third than what Stephen Harper uh, had managed to pass at around the same time. Um, and it seems like not just the the number of bills, but the problems it has faced in the Commons seem to be from its own making. The appointment of Madeleine Maillard as the Official Languages Commissioner, this is the former Liberal MPP and Attorney General of Ontario, um, to a nonpartisan position. The whole showdown over the standing orders, why? How? What's going on? With that? So, and and uh, I, I don't think you're 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 wrong there. And I think 
Um, from what I'm told internally, uh, at a lot of um, staff level meetings, starting around March, questions around this were raised. How, you know, where is our legislation? What is the approach? People, and there was a very, very restless liberal backbench this spring. And I find it interesting in the last two weeks, do you not feel this sense of urgency? I, and, and again, There's it's a plethora of bills. Exactly. Being and it's not just the, the usual end of June session no. kind of feeling because there's also things like you, you spoke about the uh, the announcement about National Indigenous Day and what's going to happen to the former U.S. Embassy and some other really major, you know, policy put in the window kind of announcements. Well, the national security stuff. Exactly. Um, the solitary confinement stuff, although they were kind of pressed about that because of a court case, but the access to information legislation, Christia Freeland's speech, the defense announcement, I, it seems it, like they've like... Yeah, and I, I was talking I to know, a, an Consulted M for the last six months and finally had something to say. Yeah, I was talking to an MP this this uh, this week who was given, uh, I, I won't say what the uh, the file was, but it'd be a, you know, a very public sort of more consultation, but um, but he, he told me that it was put off for two months. They're two months delayed. So I think part of it is, you know, when you have, we know that, you know, since, you know, Pierre Trudeau, more and more power has been centralized in the PMO. The more you centralize power, part of the thing, part of the problem with that is that decisions take longer. And I think that's something that this government has had to deal with. I mean, the, you know, their appointment process, really, really far behind, was another one. And I know MPs were really ticked about this. And I'm not sure what it was like for Mary Ng to join caucus as an MP when she had been director of appointments, when a lot of the backbench <laughs> were kind of saying like, uh, what happened? And same is true for the provinces who are waiting on these judges to be appointed and for these court cases to proceed. And we see with the, uh, the decision of the Supreme Court that the, the, the long-term problems it causes in, in some communities because uh, they they do not trust the system anymore. And that's, that's something they need to address quickly uh, because that backlog cannot continue uh, as it is. But you're right. You see this flurry of activity right before the House rises of major legislation being introduced literally days before before everyone goes home for this summer. Um, and of course, if if they prorogue as expected, then all of this will fall off the table again and they'll have to reintroduce it. So I, again, it's this perception of activity without any real progress on implementation of the agenda. Um, there, there really have been significant del delays, not just in appointments, but in actually getting major legislative initiatives done, getting legislation drafted, getting it through the House, getting it approved by the House and the Senate. So I understand why Molicare is using the word incompetent, because there seem to have been some real problems organizationally and logistically just trying to get things done. Those sort of basic uh, mechanics of running a government, I guess. So look, as a partisan conservative, um, I'm okay with them not getting anything done. <laughs> but, but, but really, if you're a government, even a majority government, four years passes so quickly. You really want to get done as much as you can in the first two years, uh, maybe three, but the early part of your mandate. Because once you're into the last year, you stop being able to do some of these controversial things. So they've got very little time left, I think, to get the substance of their agenda done. So I want to touch on the conservative leadership race just a little bit. It's not really the year in review. Well, yeah, it's the year in review. It's not the government's year in review. Um, are there any lessons learned uh, that the NDP leadership candidates could possibly apply to their race from the Maxime Bernier, Andrew Scheer experience. And the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada with 51% of the vote. The prochain chef, Andrew Scheer. 
Mr. Bernie. Tell me. It, it's totally different. The races are totally different. Uh, you had 14 candidates, 15, 20, 25. I, I mean, I lost count at some point with the Conservatives. The NDP, they have five people. Uh, there might be a couple more. They're trying to get signatures right now. But there are five candidates at this point. And, uh, and uh, uh, the process is also different. Mm -hmm. While uh, I like to call it NDP idol because you have this <laughs> runoff over a series of weeks and you can change your vote week that, after week. That's right. I mean, it's a, it's a deconstructed... Uh, you know, leadership convention, which will allow uh, a maximum of Canadians to participate and to enjoy the wall-to-wall -wall coverage from outlets like Huffington Post and others, who will for sure uh, be on the lookout for for these results as as the process unfold. But the, the big difference is, of course, the NDP is a pure one-member, one-vote, while the Conservatives are the weighted system. And so, uh, in that sense, uh, the dynamic will be a little different than what the Conservatives had to uh, see. Uh, selling membership is more important even in the NDP than it is in the Conservatives because you don't have that weight system. And so the organizers on the ground are working hard to sell membership. Uh, there are some progress, but uh, I don't know that they will reach the 120,000 members that the NDP had during the last leadership race. Uh, at this point, uh, you know, they're not there yet. Uh, they're making progress. Uh, as you know, campaigns sometimes hold on to some, some key set signing and key membership uh, deliveries uh, to, to, towards the end to create a surge and a sense of momentum. Uh, but at, at this point, uh, it's about who can sell the most membership and who can convince the actual members uh, to vote for them. Yeah, let, in terms of lessons, I'd say narrow the field. We had far too many candidates right up until the end, and I think that was um, maybe a bit of a mistake. I don't actually think the outcome, the very close uh, decision between Maxine Bernier and Andrew Scheer was a problem at all. I think it reflected the views of party members who were relatively evenly divided on, on yeah, it really was, right up until the last ballot, right, um, on who they thought would be the best leader. So the Conservative Party itself ended up with a record number of members, 260 thousand members who were eligible to vote in the leadership race ended up with a record level of donations with you know 10 million dollars raised in the last quarter so actually the leadership race itself generated a lot of buzz and a lot of excitement around the party and around who was running for leader and about the policy positions they were putting forward uh, and whether members agreed with them or not so so I actually think the leadership race overall was a very positive thing for the party what will be the a challenge now is transitioning for the new leader Andrew Scheer to transition to becoming a really credible and viable candidate for prime minister in 2019 which is a completely different exercise he told us he was going to be hitting the road in Quebec to try to get his, I think, name recognition out. And I noticed that his placard said Andrew Scheer in big letters in case yeah. you didn't know who he was. That is the biggest challenge for Andrew Scheer. Nobody, in, I would say not just in Quebec, but everywhere other than perhaps Saskatchewan, no, nobody knows who he is. So he has a big challenge in front of him um, to let Canadians know who he is and what he stands for. And he's got to start that work immediately. And he will have a first test in a by-election in yes. Lac-Saint-Jean, uh, in the Lac-Saint-Jean area where Denis Lebel just stepped down. So that's a big challenge because it's a Tory seat. Um, the NDP finished five points behind last time. The, the Liberals are immensely popular still in Quebec, so they could win this seat potentially. And, and it's a, an area where the Bloc Québécois, uh, you know, uh, basically was born. Uh, so it will be a very interesting by-election. Uh, not that by-election mean anything, but, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the short-term, uh, uh, you know, output that uh, Andrew Scheer can produce for the Conservative Party, that's a key test. Greg, let me just ask you what you're watching for this summer. 
Um, well, just to kind of um, echo on, to build on the last conversation, uh, that the NDP should be taking this time over the summer to work on rebuilding the party. I'm not sure the Conservatives did. Um, and it reminds me of the Liberal Party in 2006, where they were just kind of like, throw something at the wall, see if it sticks, and we're going to be back in power in a second. And it took them six years. It was about January 2012 before there was a uh, convention where they started actively asking the question, what do we stand for? What is the party? You know, they were at the, you know, death's door. So I, I think this is going to be a, a challenge. I think the Conservatives kind of moved too fast. So the summer for Andrew Scheer is going to be very important. But with the, the drown-out leadership that the NDP have, I think simultaneously I would be looking at things. To, you've got to ask what, what happened in the last election, what went wrong. You can't always ascribe it to, to leadership. And the Conservatives, I don't know who Tone is, but Tone was the person who caused the defeat of the last election. That's all they'll say. And the thing is, it's tough to do that. It's a warts-and-all experience. And if you don't do it, um, you're just kind of putting band-aids over things, and it took the Liberals a long time to get that message. So I think on the opposition side, that's what I'm kind of watching for. On the government side, um, it looks like they're going to do a summer caucus in Kelowna. They're not going to make the mistake of putting off what they did with the winter caucus. Um, you know, it's the airing of grievances. You know, you get a lot of time to, to do this. Um, we're going to see whether or not there's a cabinet shuffle. The last time we, we convened, we talked about how uh, Prime Minister Harper used to like to kind of retool things in the summer. Although from what we're hearing, there won't be. Yeah, there's, it kind of went, I think, it's the stick and carrot thing. You can kind of scare people into, like, perhaps behaving a bit by the threat of it or, the you know, the opportunity to get into cabinet. All right. Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure we'll see you for the rest of the summer. But what? <laughs> if we have something to talk about, we will be getting emails. We'll be covering that cabinet shovel. <laughs> Carl, Rachel, and Greg, thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, Althea. That was Rachel Curran, a senior associate with Harper & Associates. Carl Belanger is the president of the Douglas Caldwell Foundation. And Greg McEachran is a senior vice president with Enveronics. Like, we, the reason we're so far behind on bills is we spent months with, it's just like a bunch of high school students who have no penalty for running in the hallway and pulling the fire alarm when the teacher's trying to get through a lesson. That's Elizabeth May, the leader of the Green Party and the MP for Saanich Gulf Islands. Earlier this week, she voted in favor of the Liberal government's amendments to the standing orders. The Liberals have ditched some of the more controversial aspects of the reforms. For example, legislating a prime minister's question period only once a week. Instead, the government settled on changes that allow the Speaker of the House to split parts of an omnibus bill so it can have further study from different committees, and a new rule that forces governments to justify why they're proroguing. May, though, had a few suggestions for how to make the House work better. There are two things, Mr. Speaker, that could be done that would be salutary and don't require changing the standing rules. One would be for the Speaker to ignore the lists that come from whips. That's a matter of convention and not rule. The Speaker of the House could decide to, among all of us, standing as we will, take questions from any member. The second thing, Mr. Speaker, could vote, go back to our written rules, which say no reading of prepared canned speeches. This would also improve decorum in the House and ensure that people who speak know what they're talking about. The last thing, Mr. Speaker, we all have in our power, and that's to behave ourselves as if our children were watching. I asked May what she meant specifically when she suggested MPs should not rise in the Commons to speak about things they actually know little about. 
standing here and reading canned speeches is not really a debate. So it gets like a bad high school play where people don't really know their lines and can't pronounce the words properly sometimes. So in the UK, it is a rule that you don't read speeches. And Nathan Collin, my friend from Skeena Bulkley Valley in the NDP, wrote a whole chapter on how good it would be if we could do that in Canada in the book we were in together. But actually, that is the rule in our parliament too. You're not supposed to read a speech. And the salutary effect of that, particularly when you look at debates in the UK, is that the people speaking to an issue know it cold. They can stand up without a note and debate an issue. And that makes it interesting. So the one thing that strikes me by that is if you're standing up and actually giving a speech, but you as a member of parliament don't really know what you're talking about, what assurances do we have that the members of parliament actually know what they're talking about when they're voting? Well, they don't have to know anything about what they're voting on. And in fact, it's better for people in the large parties not to know anything about the bills they're voting on since they're told how to vote every day with a sheet that gets handed to them that says vote on this, yes, vote on that, no. So I've come to the conclusion over the years that reading uh, bills in detail and deciding for yourself what you think of them would be a career-limiting move in the other parties. Well, that's our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be taking a break over the summer, but check your podcast feeds where we'll probably pop up here and there. We, of course, love to hear from you. Drop me a line on Twitter at Althea Raj. And of course, if you like what you hear, please give us a good review. A big thank you this week to producer Zian Lam and especially to our technical producer, Stephanie Warner, who had a lot of work to do this week. Our executive producer is Andre Lau. I'm Althea Raj. Have a great summer.